Hi, my name is Nicole J. Georges. I'm a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist staying in Los Angeles, California with my half-blind chihuahua, Panyo Georges. <laughs> this is our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Today on Sagittarian Matters, tips for living and making art during fascism with special guest Beth Pickens. Stay tuned. Beth Pickens is a Capricorn, an arts consultant, and my friend. I've known her as a strategic planner and grant writer for artists, but she has recently started not only a radio show called Making Art Under Fascism on kchung.org, but also a weekly drop-in group to help artists sustain and grow their practices during these hard political times. Find her at bethpickens.com. Beth Pickens, Mary Potter. <laughs> Welcome to Sagittarian Matters. I am so happy to be here because I think you know I'm obsessed with podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts, yours included. Thank you. And so this is an honor. It's an honor to have you. You are an esteemed Capricorn. Uh, you are very talented at what you do. It's true. Which is that you help artists. I help artists. You claim to not be an artist yourself, mm -hmm. which I, you know... Sometimes I want to argue. Did with you that. find my latch hook pillow? <laughs> <laughs> I happen to know you do some beautiful portraits of nude lesbians via latch hook, but uh, you're very helpful to artists. It's That's true. your job. I, 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 I um, artists are my favorite people, and so with my training in counseling psychology and my background in fundraising and management, I decided I would most like to work with this group of people. What kind of artists do you like working with? Um, I work with artists in every discipline and I love working with artists across discipline because I, I can make like sweeping generalizations like, oh, writers are like this and painters are like that. And they're not really true, but it's fun for me to try to figure out the puzzle. What are cartoonists like? Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I have to tell you, you know, car cartoonists have, have a really strong tight knit subculture and they tend to know a lot of other people in their world. It's kind of like a very insular world which has lots of benefits and lots of drawbacks and that's not necessarily true about other aspects of art which are maybe enormous and you couldn't possibly know many of the people in your painting community you know um our, our cartoonists are all right thanks <laughs> what do you think it's like to date a cartoonist oh man well it's probably very similar to the anxiety one gets when dating a writer where you are like, don't you put this in your book? You know? Yeah. I, when I first got together with my wife slash husband, um, who's a writer, I remember I felt really controlling about like, you can't write about this or I don't want to be in that, you know? And then I realized after I started working with artists and doing this practice that I just had to let go all of all of that because an artist just has to make whatever it is they're going to make and it's none of my business and if I don't want to be in it, don't don't date this person, basically. You know, if you're around creative people, you're going to influence them. And that's not a bad thing. It certainly can feel vulnerable sometimes. But um, now I just know, not that I'm being written about in some precarious way in Allie's stuff, but I, I know that if I ever didn't want to read something, I don't have to read it. And I don't have to go to the readings that it's being read out loud, you know. And I think it's probably the same for cartoonists. Where she talks about your vagina. <laughs> Your vagina is a flower. 
that reading I've been to several times. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's that's a very I think that's a very good answer. And also, you're the person who coined the term. I think scary writer face, spooky writer face, spooky writer I face. It's either Michelle T, Ali Leibovitz, or me, or some combination. Yeah. But that came out of the Radar Productions Lab Retreat in Mexico, which you went on multiple mm-hmm. times, right? Mm-hmm. This re- retreat for queer artists. Because um, we noticed after the, the writing hours that all the artists had to keep, which were, you know, they, you couldn't just write whenever. You certainly could, but you had to keep quiet working hours twice a day, which is unusual for a retreat. Um, and when people would emerge out of it and sort of stumble into the kitchen to make coffee or make some lunch or something, everybody had this like kind of frightening faraway look in their eyes as they couldn't remember how to like heat up water <laughs> and they'd look at me with fright and, and it happened every year with every group of artists when they came out of that work zone I came to realize that there's some sort of a transitional moment when you're coming out of being deep in a project yeah and you have to return to the land of the living and yeah. interact with humans and it's, it's a little weird for a minute it is weird I've tried to describe that or use that term when I'm talking about myself to people I've been dating or around and they're always like, what? What's that? Like, they kind of don't... They don't notice I it? I have to explain it yeah. so thoroughly that then I feel like I'm like, oh, forget it. Yeah. Just forget it. So, so you work with artists. I'm an, I'm an arts consultant. And essentially yeah. what's in my practice is fundraising, grant writing, strategic planning, um, and career consultation. I went to graduate school to be a therapist. I became very captivated by a couple of modalities, one being feminist therapy and one being career counseling, which surprised me by my interest. I did not think that would be an interesting pursuit. But it turns out I love talking to people about work mm. because I love work and I love knowing what people do. It's the thing I always want to know about people more than anything is what what do you do for work? What do your days look like? What do you do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Um, so I love ter- talking to people about work. And when I started working in the arts more generally, I was a managing director of a couple of queer arts nonprofits in San Francisco. Uh, I really missed having that counseling piece in my life, but I didn't necessarily want to become a licensed therapist in California. Um, so I realized I could just work with the people I wanted to work with, and I could call myself a consultant and not get licensed in California. Nice. Yeah, so I called my practice not counseling, but consultation. Mm. And my clients sign a waiver saying they understand the distinction. Do they still cry? Yes, people definitely cry. When, when people talk about their families, their relationship to money, um, their fears about their practice and the future, I mean, a lot of things. And some people are just criers anyway. It doesn't matter what we talk about. You told me before that sometimes, I don't know if this is too much for the podcast, but you told me before that sometimes, like, so when people come in, you ask them, like, what's their family like? What's their history with money? What's their family's history with money? Because mm-hmm. you try to assess what their ideas are around money and their own worth. Mm-hmm. and their work, right. and then you guys go from there. Right. The first thing I do with my artist clients is about a 90-minute to two-hour intake, which is has similarities to any kind of first meeting of talk therapy, if you've been to talk therapy. I mean, I'll, I cry. Like, they're like, hi, what, what's your name? So and I'm tell like, me what brings you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um, so I ask my clients to take me through their family history uh, as far back as they're aware. And most people tend to know just about their grandparent, maybe their great-grandparent level. I'm not asking them to find out if they're in the Daughters of Revolution or anything. But just tell me, as far as they're aware, who are the people they're related to? What did those people do for work, whether paid or unpaid? What was their level of education? What was their relationship to money or 
class or caste, as Gloria Steinem would say. Mm-hmm. And what were what were their attitudes about those things? Mm-hmm. And then bring me through their parent or caregiver giver level, and then we enter them into the picture and follow them through childhood up until now. Mm-hmm. And what happens is it reveals to me how they were socialized and how the people who raised them were socialized. And pretty much, I mean, one of those strategies for, for getting people to talk about their families initially is that helps start to create a bond, a, a bond between me and the person. And when a person shares their family background and their personal history, like their childhood and school and stuff, um, they kind of tell me everything I need to know to get started with them. Whether or not those details are important, it sort of opens them up in a way where I just sort of see the path of, okay, here's where we're going to go next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They tell me pretty much what I need to know. Mm. And then you steer them? Yes. And so after that, we kind of make a plan. And some people, some artists come to me and they're what they really need is something that is very similar to therapy. Um, some, you know, straight up like positive support as they pursue their interests and sort of get to know themselves more deeply. And then other people need practical things like homework and a to-do list and somebody they're accountable to. Okay. Essentially my practice is steeped in the form of therapy I was trained in, which is called person-centered Rogerian therapy in which the relationship, the unconditional positive regard is what creates change for the person. So I definitely approach all my clients that way. I don't have a specific formula I lay on them. Um, it's sort of shaped, what I do with them is shaped around the person who's sitting in front of me. It's, it's person-centered, which is why my old K-Chung show, it's my called, old radio show was called Person-Centered. Well, that's a great segue because now <laughs> your K-Chung show is called Making Art Under Fascism. Making Art... During, during fascism. fascism. Remember, you were there for when I had to decide, is it under or during? I thought during was more empowering. Yeah, because we're not, we don't want, we don't need to bottom out to fascism. No way. Uh, so now you have a workshop you're leading. I do. Is it called a workshop? It's called a, I don't even know what to call it. It's, it's like a group. It's like a, a, a drop-in group for artists. There's a drop-in group in Los Angeles and it's called Making Art During Fascism. Making Art During Fascism. And so what made you want to do this? Sure. Given your, now what we know about your practice in your job and your clients and everything. And then people may not know, but there was just a very shocking election that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be airing after the election. Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. This will be airing after the election. (laughs) Um, Well, after the election, uh, which I mean, I'm sure you and I had very similar experiences where we and everyone we knew were just in the depths of grief and shock for about seven to 10 days and then started to come to and experience different things like rage and anxiety and motoring into a plan and being obsessed with the news sort of it takes lots of different shapes um but i noticed that as i started hearing from my clients who were all just really depressed and shocked and just really messed up over the election as i was um i started hearing similar questions from people like should i quit making art should i do something else now or how how can I keep doing what I was doing? I need to do something that's more critically useful. Or just all of these questions sort of second-guessing what they're already doing and, and feeling like I need to abandon that plan and do something else, which is normal in grief or in tragedy. You just want, you want to do something. Even if there's not a clear thing to do, you just want to get right into action because people don't want to feel grief. You want to start acting because that gets you out of the feelings. Whereas it seemed very clear that we probably just need some time of like, both planning and feeling the horrible feelings and working through that. So 
it occurred to me, all right, I'll backtrack a little. My very good friend is a professor at Georgetown who teaches um, history. Marsha? Marsha Chatlin, Dr. Marsha Chatlin, who has a podcast called Office Hours that's really great too. She's so cool. She's really cool. And we were together on vacation in the Yucatan um, when Michael Brown was murdered. In we were Ferguson. there when Ferguson was happening. We were there when Ferguson was happening. And I she there. and I, well, we, we were there a couple of days before when it just happened mm-hmm. and we were just watching everything over her Twitter feed. And Marsha and I met in Columbia, Missouri, where we both went to the University of Missouri for undergrad degrees. And, you know, Ferguson was outside of St. Louis. It was like, it felt very close to home. And, um, she, she and I were talking about, you know, what to do and how people want to do something. What do you do? And so a lot of people were fleeing to Ferguson to protest, to do something. And so she was commenting on that town. One of the issues is they don't have an infrastructure to deal with all the influx of people, especially, you know, well-meaning activists who have great intentions, but maybe not a lot of know-how who could maybe put the black community there at more risk. So she started a Twitter on a Twitter hashtag called Ferguson syllabus. And the intention behind that was to encourage educators because school is about to start to encourage educators, regardless of the age of students they taught and regardless of subject matter, encourage them to bring Ferguson and racism into the classroom for a meaningful dialogue that no matter what you taught, it was possible. And so if you taught kindergartners, talking to them about their experiences and, and, and listening, and if you taught high school chemistry, talking about the chemical makeup of um, crowd control and how chemicals are used to militarize public space, and certainly if you teach college students like entering into these dialogues in every class, um, because schools were pressuring teachers not to bring it up when school started, and the kids in Ferguson weren't even going to start school. So there was a lot of stuff wrapped up in school. And anyway, so she comes up with this hashtag and it it gets a lot of traction and educators all over and all kinds of subject matter start having these great ideas for what they can do where they are. And what I clocked from Marsha that day was that when something terrible happens and you want to do something, start with who am I, where am I, what do I know how to do already? That's where I should enter with what I already have to bring. I don't have to wait until I have a different skill or more money or more time. I don't have to wish I were somehow a different person. I just start where I'm at. And so after the election, I was so devastated. And I was thinking, should I quit doing what I do and go just, you know, like everybody having the same feelings. And I realized, okay, what do I know how to do? I know how to support artists to amplify their experience in the world, their impact. They go on then to have enormous impact, way more than I do. And that's one of the things I love about artists and art is that it conveys so much more than what I could talking to a person. Like one, me one-to-one does one thing, but then that artist goes on to make something that then impacts potentially thousands of people in a really meaningful way. I mean, I'm sure we're similar in that we've had artwork that literally saved our lives and made us want to be alive. Yeah. And artists that made us want to be on the planet during times in our lives where we didn't want to be on the planet. I know the power of art. So I thought, okay, I can support artists so that they can go on to do really big, important, impactful things in this new political reality we're entering into. Um, And so I came up with this idea to have a weekly sort of support group, just a free drop in place that artists can come to every week to check in, talk about like what's going on with them. Are they still not making art after after the election, which is something I've heard from a lot of people is I haven't, I stopped making art. Stop going to my studio. 
um, whether they're not making art or they're feeling really lonely and isolated or they want to do a thing but they need help or they want to get involved with a particular thing but they don't know how to enter and they need a referral or a resource. Just a place, sort of like a clearinghouse for the artists in my larger circles over here on the east side of Los Angeles. Um, to help people continue in their practice, continue making art and continue having the really great impact that their art can have. That's the thing I know how to do. So that's what I decided to do. Mm -hmm. I know how to do that and I know how to raise money. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I focus on. Mm -hmm. And I had the first gathering at Peter Space, which is a really wonderful, radical community dance space in Lincoln Heights in Los Angeles. They hosted the first one. Um, and about 40 artists came. And some people who, who said they weren't artists, but they were just really interested in the title. And... Um, I, I held the first one and now it will be weekly at the Women's Center for Creative Work. And so I made these pamphlets. I like to think of myself as a pamphleteer, mm. like Jonathan Swift in the American tradition of pamphleteers. Not a zinester. Not a zinester because a as you'll notice, it's all just typed and then copied. There's, I don't write. I don't. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's a pamphlet. Okay. But, you know, I like to think that were Fact Sheet 5 still around, this would be in it. It looks like a zine. It looks like a zine. Yeah. It's folded like a zine. Amanda Verwey, another great artist who makes zines, she, she designed this for me. So this pamphlet is called Making Art During Fascism. Yes. And so um, one of the main things that you say in the beginning of this is do not stop making art. Yeah. Don't not stop not making art. Don't not stop. <laughs> Don't stop believing. Yeah. Do not stop making art, though, which I think is... Why? The, uh, my thesis, my entire, the backbone of my consulting practice is this, that an artist has to make art to take care of themselves, to be on the planet. What would happen to me, Nicole Georges, if I stopped making art? Uh, dare I say things on you would shrivel up and... Turn rancid. No, I think what hap what would happen to you would happen to all the artists I know, and I, I see it happen all the time. You become depressed and anxious and isolated. What I find working with artists of all disciplines is when they, when they stop making art, when they stop being engaged in whatever creative practice they're in at the moment, they become despondent, uh, depressed, isolated, anxious. Their life quality goes down. And so what that taught me years back when I sort of formulated this theoretical orientation toward artists was that an artist makes art to be alive on the planet. It's like how they process the world. It's how they feel feelings, how they communicate. And it's different than me. That's one of the reasons why I say I'm not an artist. That's not how I process being alive and how I deal with things. No. <laughs> you don't have and to draw not, a picture of it? I don't have to draw. I don't have to make music. I don't have to dance. I, I do other things. <clears throat> I need the art though. I very, very badly need to take in the art. But I, so number one, you can't stop making art because you, personal listener listening right now, if you're an artist, your life quality will go down if you stop making art for a long period of time. It's, it's a key thing you do to be on the planet. So first and foremost, <clears throat> you've got one life to live, <laughs> not to quote some of my favorite soaps, but you do have one life to live and I want your life to be, to be really wonderful. And, and the way you do that is by doing the things you need to do to take good care of yourself. You're listening to Sagittarian Matters with Nicole Georges. Hey, Nicole. Uh, after the election, I just thought, why make art, right? It just seems super trite and self-indulgent. I mean, 
do I need to become a lawyer or a teacher or something more important? You got to help me out. Please. I think before the election, they may have had similar feelings that would come out a different way. You know, I think artists in our culture, many of them are sort of socialized and oriented to believe that focusing on their practice is selfish or they should be doing something else that makes more money or um, that it's it, it's an indulgence instead of the thing that one of the things you're on the planet to do, right? It's like a really important thing, not to mention important profession, even if our culture devalues it literally. Um, but so no, making art is not suddenly different than it was before the election because you still have to do it. Um, and art during oppressive regimes becomes even more critical for the people. Having access to art that is politically charged and that isn't politically charged, having access to art in all forms helps people continue agitating during oppressive times. It's so important. It serves so many different roles. And if you want to make politicized art that's overtly about your political beliefs or your identity, do it. If you don't, don't do it. That's okay, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think it's a... I think... Uh, and I talk about it in my, in my little um, zine pamphlet here. Nina Simone, I'm paraphrasing, but basically said the artist's job is to reflect the times in which they live. And I think that all art does... But the thing is, your, your context that you live in is going to be similar to mine and different. So I may look at your art and say, that's not reflecting my experience on the planet right now. But that doesn't mean it's not reflecting your experience on the planet right now. Mm-hmm. And the form, the abstract level, the abstraction or the abstractness or not abstractness of it also mitigates that. So the, the short answer is, if you want to make politicized art, do it. And if you don't, that's okay too. I have this crazy new idea where I want to encourage every cartoonist I know to start making, just just because, to start to make some single panel political cartoons that are easily seen and like taken in by people, because I feel like surely some of them will go viral and we can help shape the cultural reality that's happening. Because all the cartoonists I know are like reblogging stuff on Facebook. Or retweeting mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. We're not using the tool that we have, right. which is cartooning. And if we all tried to make some kind of propaganda at the same time and just like infiltrated the internet with it, mm. I feel like we could make a difference in I don't know, I just think about like the disgusting caricatures that have come before during like different political movements mm-hmm. of different kinds of people and how those images are burned in your head. Oh yeah. Like weird racist caricatures of all kinds of different people right. are burned into your head because an image is so powerful. Yeah. And it is asking people to do something outside of their their practice, their realm, because most of the people I know don't do political cartoons. Mm-hmm. But I also am like, you guys, this is a thing we have. Right. We're all cartoonists. We all make images to convey our feelings. What if we just all try to do it at the same time for a purpose? That's a great idea. It would be really interesting to have, like, you know, a thousand cartoons come out on the – one panel cartoons come out on the same day about, you know, I don't know, like Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that would be crazy. And sort of, like, flooding flooding digital and social media with those images coming from a thousand different people. I, I think that could have a great impact. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it is a little bit different because it is besides the idea of us just continuing on our own path of making art because we need to make art. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back on track. I'm glad you like that idea. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about writing to every cartoonist I know and saying in the email, please don't block me. I promise not to spam you anymore. But I just want to say, since we all know each other... 
And we all have this tool. What if we all at the same time did this thing? I think it's a great idea. It'd be cool. Well, it was the idea of heartening our, it's not even my idea. I mean, I came up with it when I was sitting at this table and we were talking about this idea I've talked to you about before about heartening our protectors. Like, even if the electors don't all vote the way we want them to, even if whatever um, whatever security dudes work in the White House and I are not in line on a lot of things, if we let them know that we support them and not accepting this horrible monster as their commander in chief, or if we let them know that if they decide to go against him, we support them, I right. think that they could help them make the right decisions because they can't be compelled to go through with war crimes if it's immoral just because a commander in chief tells them to. I have heard from people who work in in government that especially people who work for senators and um, Congress people at the state and federal level, that the thing that has the most impact is phone calls. Really? I've, I've heard that from multiple sources. I've read that multiple places that that more than tweets or emails or, you know, change.org things, whatever, that the thing that seems to have the most impact on that individual uh, elected officials behavior and belief is the sheer volume of phone calls that come in about something. Mm. And I, I remember hearing this in the context of the NRA and some kind of gun legislation because the NRA is very effective at mobilizing their members to call. Anytime there's a mass shooting, the first thing that happens is NRA members call their elected officials oh. and ask them if they're going to protect the Second Amendment. And so we our work side, yeah, we, we don't tend to have the same kind of big mobilization. We don't have like a progressive membership that sort of encompasses a ton of people. I mean, there's just a, a lot of them, but I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, you know, I hate using the telephone. We were talking about that earlier. I don't even order pizza unless I could do it online. I don't want to talk to a human, but I have to start getting comfortable with calling, mm-hmm. not just phone banking during elections, but calling elected officials, calling my representatives and asking 10 friends to do that anytime something big is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, sidebar. Yeah, but I like that. That's good to know. All right, back to art. Back to art. Make some art. So it's not trite. It's not self-involved. You're doing it because you need to continue existing on this planet. Mm-hmm. So and somebody else needs it too. That's that's the thing. Yeah. Um, I got really great advice. I heard great advice from artist Jibs Cameron one time when she encouraged people in a workshop, artists who came to a workshop, to write a fan letter to an artist they love, whether that person's alive or not. And so I often like to think about and ask other artists to think about who made something that had such an impact on you that if they had not made that, your life would be in a different place. And just know that you may never know who is going to be deeply impacted by what you make, but it's going to happen. And so your job is to make the thing and then let it be in the world so that the people who need to find it are able to find it. <laughs> it's really, really true. Because not every artwork that had a big impact on me or, or I get I get changed by things all the time when I see them. And they're not always big, well-known things you can find on the internet by globally known blue chip artists. It's by people who don't have major careers and it's by people who are making things that are smaller or quieter or are, are, are reflective of a smaller corner of the universe, you know? Um, so you just, you don't know who needs to see it. Do you in particular work with queer and marginalized people oh, yes, in your I practice? <laughs> yes, I do. My background is in fundraising for artists who are women, queer, trans, and people of color. So that is sort of like my specialty of understanding how to fundraise for the these artists, understanding ways in which 
private and public funding has historically excluded them from large pools of money and what's being done to rectify that. And also how these extra layers of socialization impact their ability to build a career. Like by asking for what they deserve, oh, maybe they don't know they yes. deserve. I love telling my female clients in particular, women clients across identity, I love to tell them what their male peers are doing. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. When when a, when an artist is like, oh, I feel bad asking to get paid for that thing. I'm like, Rip! record scratch. That's what that was. Um, let me tell you what your male peers are doing. And then I tell them like how much money they would be asking for and... Um, n- not like a real person that I'm like ratting out, but like just giving yeah. examples of this is how people are socialized to talk about money, to negotiate, to have their first asking fee to be like two times what they want so they can negotiate down to something reasonable instead of starting at your minimum and then going well below that. Um, this is so interesting. So I've had Tara Perkins and Rocco Cairados and Lorelai Lee on the podcast all talk about negotiating. Mm -hmm. What are your best tips for negotiating? Um, My best tips for negotiating, for one thing, just know it's a performance. If you are scared and don't feel confident, just know so is 99% of the people going in to negotiate for anything. It's a performance. And artists usually can relate to the idea of like, oh, I'm performing something right now. So a negotiation is, it's a a little performance piece. Um, And another tip is starting starting relatively beyond what you expect to get so that as you negotiate down, you're still coming above what you hoped for. Well, whatever your internal bottom line is, you want to make sure you land above that. So you never start with what that bottom line is. Mm -hmm. Um, Not taking it personally, which is something really hard for people with money. But I think that's one of the disadvantages of, of sexism in our culture is I think typically men are socialized to take certain things less personally than women are socialized to. These are sweeping generalizations, but I think one of them really occurs with money. Mm -hmm. And it's never personal. It's just capitalism. Capitalism is not personal. It's people trying to get as much money as they can and not give it away. Mm -hmm. Your job is to do that too when you're trying to get paid for something. I love that you say it's just capitalism. It's just capitalism. And you gave a grant workshop to one of my comics classes that had a great impact on several of my students who have gone on to sing your praise. This is probably like eight years ago or something. It seems like a million years ago. Maybe it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it was two years ago. I don't know. But um, one of the things you said was money doesn't always follow talent and vice versa. Yes. There's, this is something I always tell people. There's not a correlation between artistic excellence and external validation. And we know this because we see dumb shit all the time get exalted. And then brilliant people die in obscurity. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, like... I was just listening to your Beth Ditto podcast, and through all my years of listening to the gossip and, and loving Beth Ditto, I would always hear people say, you know, it's like justice that she got this success. It feels like a little piece of justice that that person got famous and is getting all these accolades. And I was like, yeah, sometimes it works. A really talented, amazing person like becomes a star, and often they don't. So I'm telling people that so they understand if they don't get something, it doesn't correlates to their value as an artist what about as a human yes now that it does (laughs) (laughs) so if you don't get a grant your humanity dumb shit gets funded all the time yeah and brilliant things don't it's not correlated to your to your talent or your excellence or your artistic vision or how relevant or brilliant your project is i love that i love that you're here to help artists you've helped me 
You help me get funded every time. Like every time I write a grant for myself, I'm like, Ugh. but when you write grants for me, it's like a slam, slam, slam dunk. dunk. <laughs> you just you do it, and then you're like, whoosh, whoosh, nothing yeah. but net. I write. I I should count. I think I write like 300 grants a year. Oh my god. I just surpassed 2.3 million dollars raised. Yeah. <gasps> Really? Yeah, on my own. Since I went out on my own, separate from my grant writing mentor, Jeff Jones, who taught me everything I know. So you've taken $2.3 million, basically given that to queer and marginalized artists. Um, yeah, that's raised for individual artists and for small, micro and small budget arts organizations. I love that. Um, question. This is, this is an advice question. How do I detect and separate my need for alone time and rest from depression and isolation? Oh. How do you know when you're resting or need downtime? And yeah. how do you know when you're depressed? That is a very common issue. Um, and what, so when I notice that's going on for my clients, I, th- I think a lot of artists need alone time. Yeah. Um, certainly many practices and many disciplines sort of require alone time to do the actual labor of the work. Um, and you also, as an artist may just need time in your head, sort of spending time with your thoughts and feelings and working through ideas. And those are all valid things, but I often see it slip into depression and numbing out, not just depression, but sort of numbing out with drugs, alcohol, Netflix, whatever thing a person sort of decides to get numb with because they can't handle or they don't want to deal with whatever's happening in their world. Um, and, and so my recommendation is to be as rigorously honest as you can with yourself as to why you're turning down opportunities to be with people. If you find yourself ignoring texts and phone calls from friends, flaking out on plans, um, not answering emails, sort of checking out of life, just really be as honest as you can with yourself. You don't have to be honest with other people about it. You can tell them your white lies about why you're not going out. But with yourself, just say, what's going on? What's going on here right now? Mm-hmm. Um, what did I, I actually wrote about this in my pamphlet. Oh, oh did you? Oh, the, I, I recommend talking to somebody. So hopefully you have some trusted people in your life who have your back that you could actually say, this is what's going on. Do I, does that sound like depression to you? <laughs> or does it just sound like a, a, I'm hibernating and it's winter? I mean, it's L.A., so we don't really have a hibernation excuse here. Yeah. It's not Minneapolis. Um, and therapy or a 12-step program or whatever mechanism of help you can get from and with other human beings is really useful. But I think the first step is just, like, really check in with yourself. What if you're poor and you hate God? <laughs> <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> Not to brag. You might be poor and hate God. Um, you, you mean could, in terms of... Could one still avail themselves of therapy or 12-step programs? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, 12-step programs or spiritual programs are not affiliated with any religious sect. Um, and you cannot believe in God and go to them and, and be a part of them for many, many years. And therapy is not, I mean, I let, unless you're going to, I guess, a super Christian conversion therapy for gay people. I don't that's, think that's what I go to. Is that, that's what, I just got into that. It's almost, it's almost done working. It's, it's almost, almost worked. It's almost worked. <laughs> basically. Um, Beth, because do you have any pro tips on being active and engaged while maintaining your practice and well-being? You know, I happen to write a list of them and I'd be happy to. Um, so... A, a, a thing I heard from quite a few artists was overwhelm after the election. You know, there was most people I know were already engaged in some sort of activism or social movements because those are the people I tend to know. 
And, but, and so after the election, those issues all still exist, but now it seems like there's about to be 50 new ones dumped in our laps that are pretty big when it comes to environmental and human rights. Yeah. And so overwhelm is a natural response to that. Like, well, what do I do? How am I, this single person, going to protect Roe v. Wade, um, protect, you know, stop cops from killing black youth and um, also protect, you know... Water. I don't know if I can do yeah. all those things by myself. So what I recommend for people to think about for 2017 as we go into this new administration, unless that electoral vote changes or the recount works, crossing my fingers, looking at you, Jill Stein. Knock on wood. Um, assuming we're going to go into this new political reality that has a lot of uncertainty, but a lot of doom and gloom, I recommend people think about one specific issue they want to focus on in 2017 that directly impacts their lives. And selecting an additional issue that does not directly impact their lives. Mm. So focusing on two things in 2017, and that's what's going to get your resources. Be that time, money, skill, space, equipment, whatever resources you have to give. Pick two areas, one that directly affects you and one that doesn't directly affect you, where you can be of service to someone or something more vulnerable than you. Mm -hmm. Um, And... If that's not possible, and it's not true, it's just not possible for some people. They're like, I have these six or seven things. I'm not going to pick among them. That's totally fine. Then to those artists, I recommend identifying a particular skill or thing that they can do and replicate over and over and over again. And I give examples like these six organizations you want to support, offer them pro bono graphic design for the year. Mm. Or do a monthly, pull a group of friends and do a monthly fundraising activity of some sort and every month give the money to a different organization. Or provide your studio. You know, in LA, people tend to have a lot of space down here. People have big studios. They have homes. There's just a little bit more space in this big um, Southland landscape. And so you could offer your studio space, if you have that, for meetings for groups that want to get ad hoc groups that want to do something like some kind of a response, you could offer your space as like a go-to, like, well, we know we can go there to have a meeting, you know? Mm -hmm. So you can kind of think of, here's a thing I could do or offer, and I can replicate it over and over and over again to all these different organizers who I want to support next year. Mm -hmm. That's great. Hey guys, you're listening to Sagittarian Matters. I'm Nicole Georges. What are your general tips for young artists? Define just, young. Young. Well, just any any up-and-coming artist. Like anyone who's just... Under 25 kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. Okay. Or just, yeah, people that are just starting or, or maybe even older people that are like, I am an artist mm. or they're, they're, just, they're just making yeah. their way. The three things that I think artists need to have to have a practice and, um, and, and to build like a community and stuff... Number one, you have to make art. That's what makes an artist. You make art. Mm-hmm. Number one, make art. Then number two, you need a community of working artists. You've got to find people. Doesn't matter discipline. Doesn't matter form. But other artists who want to and are having a practice and be with them. Do things with them. See art. Organize things with them. And the third thing is you need to take in art. You need to take in creative stimulation. Um, in all forms, stuff you love, stuff you hate, stuff you're not really sure about, stuff that you think you'll be kind of afraid of. You need to take in all kinds of different work. 
So I think those three things are the first thing I recommend. You need to have those three in balance. Um, then for emerging artists, regardless of the age, that community piece I want to go back to. Your community of artists is a key element in your life because you will share resources with each other, labor. Um, you can organize to put on shows and do things, anything you want to do. You don't have to wait for an opportunity. You can make it for yourselves. I really believe that three to five committed, competent people, earth signs, just kidding, um, <laughs> can do anything. Three to five really committed people can do just about anything. Like what? Like can organize a big protest, mm -hmm. can start a shop, mm -hmm. can um, put a candidate for public office and get them going. Like three to five people who are really committed to something can really be very effective. Mm-hmm. Because people want leaders. I mean, I, this might be the Capricorn in me talking, but I think most people want very much to lead a powerful visionary. Yeah. <laughs> and so if there's a small group that has an effective message and, and sort of a plan of like, okay, this is what we're going to do, you'll get a lot of people who, who are like, okay, we're ready to follow. We want to do this thing with you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's I, very top-down leadership. I, I, I it's not matrilineal. No, I'm pretty hierarchical as a Capricorn. I'm like, well, there's somebody. There's a boss at the top, right? Who? Where's the boss? Excuse me. Can I talk to the, <laughs> the manager? <laughs> I hope it's a man. Well, you, you're you are good at having that role, and when you're in that role, I feel completely at ease. It's very dog whisperer. It's very like, <laughs> oh, the calm assertive leader is telling us right. what to do, and because she's not wavering or saying, I don't know. Yeah. It makes me be like, oh, great. Someone's in charge. Right. So I don't have to worry. My brain doesn't have to spin out thinking about like, oh, what are we going to do next? What's going to happen next? Because yeah. I'm like, that's got it. I got it. I have that effect even when I don't got it or have no idea. It's like I'm the spreadsheet whisperer, you know, because my brain thinks in very much like this, like a, a list, of, a to-do to list, a grid, a spreadsheet, a timeline. My brain thinks in these forms. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate it's it. It's not very creative, but it's effective. It is effective. Well, us creatives. You know, another thing you told me before that was very valuable to me was I was talking with somebody got mad at me because I didn't respond to their emails in a timely fashion. And you were like, you're an artist. You're not an administrator. Yeah. And I was like, thank you for seeing me. Because I, I never think about it like that because I just feel like I should be able to do these things. Right, right, right. I should yeah. be able to, like, have all my business stuff completely, like, yeah. do, 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 no. in check. And then also... Be this creative person that is right, but I appreciate that you like artists are a different kind of people. Yeah, and they may not, and and it's definitely useful for artists to strengthen their business practices. Yes, um, and if people have the money, I encourage them to hire people to do things that they don't know how to do or don't want to do. Yeah, because like I can I can whip together a budget for you in five minutes, which may be hard for you. I cannot make a graphic novel. You know, so it's better for you to spend your time doing that thing that you know how to do and let the people who know how to do a spreadsheet do that thing. Yeah. I think people should get paid to do the thing they're good at. I just had like $15 to my name and I had to do hundreds and hundreds of copy edits on my book. Like go downloading a giant file, going into Photoshop, finding the place where this person wants a comma, putting it in, re flattening it, redoing it, re-uploading And I just like was stalling out and just like would rather put my head in the oven than do it. Since I had like a nickel that I was rubbing, I got to hire a production assistant to do all that for me. And I felt like my life was given back. Yeah. I felt like dancing. 
It was great. It's really great. And then he did it. It was great to work with him. Mm -hmm. It was great to talk to him again. He got it all done. It was no problem for him. He was like, this is fun. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Thank God you exist. Oh, I remember one time an artist asked me, it was just a friend. It wasn't a client. She was sobbing because she hadn't submitted a final report for a grant she'd gotten. And she was sure that this just was like signaling something to her about a failure or something. And I was like, that's not a problem. Come over. We'll do this thing in half an hour. And she was flabbergasted. I can actually use that word here. She was flabbergasted. She's like, really? You can do this? And I was like, yeah, I can do that in like 20 minutes. <laughs> and we sat there and did it together. And and she was so grateful. And just this, it, it became very clear to me, this is something she really doesn't know how to do or is so overwhelmed with learning it. And it's like no problem for me. It's so easy. And I can't do the things she does, right? Like we all have different gifts and skills. And in an ideal situation, we're compensated to do those gifts and skills. Yeah, I love that. Do you think that competition in art is helpful or harmful? That say it again, competition? Yeah. I find that the more I talk to male cartoonists, they're very competitive with each other. And if they see someone else with something, it means that they don't have it. Mm. And maybe they feel like they deserved it. But I don't find that in our our artistic world mm-hmm. of queer artists or queer literature. We're a little bit more about like all rising up together, yeah. helping each other up. Like if Michelle T gets something good, I'm like, that's great. Mm-hmm. Michelle just works so hard. Right. Or like you just talking about Beth Ditto being like, isn't that great? She works so hard. Yeah. I am 100% wired against competition. I don't believe it. I think capitalism encourages a false sense of competition where there really is none. There's a ton of resources. There's a lots to give out. Maybe there's one prize, but somebody invented that prize and then we all agreed that, oh my God, that prize is really important. Yeah. I don't think competition is very useful. Um, I think it's great to sort of be in competition maybe with yourself and like, am I getting better at this thing I want to be better at? But when I compare my insides to somebody's outsides, I'm going to be left in despair. What? Yes. What do you mean? Because you're only seeing them from the yeah, outside? Yeah. If I compare my what it feels like to be me with what I think is happening to you, mm-hmm. i.e. looking at anybody's Instagram ever when you're having a shitty day. Yeah. It's called compare and despair when you compare your insides to somebody's outsides. Oh, my God. And I think that's really true for artists. I've never heard this before. (laughs) I've sincerely never heard this before. (laughs) I'm such a sucker for any... Any kind of like slogan or saying. It's a really useful one because it's really true. And therapeutic metaphors are, I'm just like, (gasps) yeah. All of my, I I could say virtually every client who's ever been in this office with me has had, has brought up issues around comparison and feeling lots of despair with that. And it's, I, I really just find it destructive. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe in competition. I think while we're competing with each other, those men are getting everything. That's always what I believe. Like while we're fighting each other because we think there's only a few resources, A, that's a lie. And B, while we're like trying to rip each other's lives apart, these white dudes are getting everything. Yeah. So let's... <laughs> that's capitalist lie, you know, like keep the masses fighting each other because we tell them there's a scarcity of resources. And then while that's happening, then the, the oligarchy or whatever fascist leadership we're living under, they get to hoard all the resources. And we see that's happening, right? Like the, the very ultra rich, there's like more and more of them getting super, super rich. And then the gap between them and everyone else is just getting wider and wider and wider. There's plenty of fucking resources. How do we for get artists them? too? How do artists get resources? Um, like, give me a specific one, like grants or should we write grants? Should we sell our art? 
Should we, I don't know. Yes, you should do everything. You should put your hat in the ring. I find that a lot of artists self-select out of competitions for things because they'll talk themselves out of it. They'll self-sabotage by doing it at the last minute and turning in a really crappy application or by not doing it all. They talk themselves out of it all the time. And your hat should be in the ring. The only way you're going to get picked is if you're eligible. If you're an applicant for something, you're definitely not going to get a thing if you don't apply. You will absolutely not get it if you don't apply. Yeah. So I talk to my clients a lot about that um, to be strategic about what they apply for because artists are busy. They usually have one or more jobs to support themselves plus their job of being an artist and their practice. Um, So they have limited time to devote to things like applications for residencies, for grants, to be in shows, whatever. And so you have to be strategic with those hours. So I like artists to think about, first of all, am I eligible for this? Does it seem to be an appropriate fit? When I look at the people who've gotten in the past, whoever got it last year, whatever the thing is, are those my peers? You know, are they professionally my peers? Are they people who have 30 years on me? Are they generally speaking my peer group? If they are, then that seems like a good fit. Mm -hmm. And then giving yourself enough time to complete something so you're not doing something last minute. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, you, you... how you get resources is you ask for them. First and foremost, mm-hmm. you, you ask. The more you ask for, the more you, you'll get, and the more you'll be said no to, which is really useful, again, for my clients who you know, are parts of different marginalized identities. Being said no to is really frightening for a lot of them. But once it happens a few times, they become desensitized to it. And that's where I want to get to. Like, Don't worry. We'll get the, past the first few rejections for grants, and then you'll be like, you won't care and we'll move on to the next one Mm -hmm. because the more you ask for the more you're going to get turned down and the more you're going to get it's just a statistics game Mm -hmm. this is great so don't take it personal nothing's personal it's not personal it's not personal it's drag i think Alyssa edwards said that oh it's all drag (laughs) it's not personal it's drag oh my god you have a picture of Alyssa edwards above your desk yeah looking (laughs) gorgeous she's a capricorn she is yeah and she said one time on rupaul's drag race or maybe what's the tea? RuPaul's podcast with Michelle Visage. Um, the struggle is real, but the hustle is deep. Yes, <laughs> that's so great. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what the the hustle is deep. Yeah, she's yeah. really hardworking. That's she I feel like a hustling. complaining. Yeah, and if she doesn't get something, she smiles graciously and moves on to the next thing. And we saw that so beautifully in this last in all stars season of all stars, where she got taken out unfairly twice, twice. and she was really one of the front runners to me mm-hmm. this season. Oh yes. And she just kept going. And that's all, yeah. that's all, that's the only way anyone has anything is from hustling and from keeping hustling. going. Yeah. And don't let it and ask you down. For things. Work hard and ask for things. Work hard and ask for things. Is there ever a point where you tell people to stop making their art? <laughs> I'm like, you know what, kid? This isn't working out for you. Yeah. Um, stop making their art. Well, maybe temporarily, you know, if somebody's in, you know, maybe somebody's lost somebody. Um, they're in a terrible depression or they're healing from a surgery. There might be a phase of life issue where I say, you know, they'll say, I'm, I feel so guilty. I'm not making any art. I'm a loser. And I'll say, you know, how about just take a month off of it? We'll revisit this in a month. But yeah. first you have to go through this life thing and yeah. then you'll come back around. Yeah. But not permanently. Yeah. You're never like, you got no talent. Well, Get out of my office. I don't work with anybody whose art I don't like. Yeah. You know, I, I could not write grants for art that I'm not interested in. Yeah. So, and it's just personal taste. That's not even to say it's good or bad. It's just, I know what I resonate with. Mm-hmm. And if I resonate with it, I can fundraise for it. And mm-hmm. if I don't, I can't. Yeah. I tried when I first started 
I would just, to build up my client roster, I would take whoever came to me. And I, it was like pulling teeth, trying to write grants for work that I did ever care if it got made. Yeah. But when it's something I feel passionately about, I can write very passionately about it and I can see it in my mind. And I'm like, God, I need, I need to read this book or I need to see this painting, you yeah. know? So it's so much easier to rally and get resources for the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy that you work with me. Thank you for all of your fundraising help. You know what, kid? I, I'm, I've been meaning to tell you. <laughs> I, I don't think this gig's for you. Time, time to, to hang up my hat. Sorry, everyone. Podcast over. Book's done. It's done. Beth Pickens has spoken. Beth Pickens, do you have any last minute advice in general about life? Not for artists, just for humans. Um, yes. I just saw one of my things that I think is really helpful. It, feeling depressed? Question mark. Being of service to someone is a really good antidote to depression. So during this particularly bleak time in our in our culture on our planet, um, when you're feeling really overwhelmed and really down, just see how can you be of service to someone else. How can you ease the suffering of another human being? It will help lift your depression. I agree. I agree. Can people order these from you? No, but this is going to become a larger book with the that, feminist press. That I think tentatively, pending to- pending it all working out. Will come out maybe next year on the feminist press. Making art during fascism. Yeah. If you live in Los Angeles, you can find this. It's at this space called the Women's Center for Creative Work. You can look up Beth Pickens through the Women's Center for Creative Work. You can go to these support groups. Is there any other way people can contact you? Or yeah, they can. They can contact me. Um, they can email me. I can send them a PDF of this if they wanted it. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll send it. I email it to people. I just don't. I'm not putting it on my on my website. My website is just basically like an angel fire space trash. It just has <laughs> my name on it, and it has for a year. It's nice. <laughs> it's really creepy. Yeah, I'm gonna get it made in 2017. Sure. That's fun. That's fun. <laughs> Pickens E at gmail dot com. Yeah. Pickens E as in Elizabeth at gmail dot com. Please don't send me dick pics. Why? Okay, send me your tip yeah. Uh And yeah, I can send you a PDF of this and you're welcome to read it and share it with people. Should people kill themselves right now? No, whatever you're feeling right now, it's not your final feeling. It's not. Sadness is not your final emotion. No. You're going to feel different feelings, I promise. Yeah. The only thing we know is that change is for real. Change is the only permanent thing. So this will change. Yeah. And you're not alone. Nobody's alone right now. You are really, all you have to do is talk to like five other human beings and you'll realize, oh, I am really not alone in how I'm feeling. No matter what your deal. Yeah. And it's still better to be alive now than ever before. I know. We just saw Gloria Steinem the other night and people were, she's in her eighties now. She's 82. And somebody was like, what have you learned? People were like, how, how do you keep going? Whatever, whatever. And she, cause we were, they were talking about Trump and sorry, I said his name and how awful things were. And she was like, well, I've seen worse things mm-hmm. it took four murders to get nixon in the white house mm-hmm. she's like we had to watch two kennedys get murdered and malcolm x and mlk mm-hmm. before nixon got in the white house and i just thought about that yeah. and listening to nina simone after the election and hearing her songs that she recorded like live right after they saw martin luther king jr get shot it was like oh. i just can't even imagine living then. like you saw like like the violent, violent, like Malcolm X, you saw Malcolm X get shot, yeah. who was like white devils. And then you saw Martin Luther King Jr. who was like, I'm playing by the rules. Yeah. And all the leaders getting murdered. shot in front of people, all, all the people's, Black Panthers, murdered. all people's reasons for hope yeah. getting shot down and white supremacy, just like ruling the land. Yeah. And still 
people had hope and still were somewhere a little bit different today. Yeah, and um, and I like to remember that 48% of eligible voters did not vote, and many people are not eligible to vote because of issues related to rate, age, citizenship, or incarceration. There's lots of people who can't even vote, um, and all those kids are going to grow up to be voters, right? But of eligible voters, less than half voted for that thing. Mm-hmm. Less than half. So we're, like Gloria Steinem said, we're the majority, the people who are moving toward greater and greater civil liberties and liberation for people, the animals and the planet. We're the majority. That's only been getting bigger throughout time. It was really small. Oh, a thing I wanted to say, this is one of my last minute tips. How I, one of the ways in which I try to stay grounded, I read a lot of history, both recent history and ancient history. That helps you stay real grounded because you're like, you know what? We're doing better than we were a thousand years ago. Most people think slavery is bad, whereas it used to just be an accepted thing that somebody would have to be a slave. And <laughs> women are citizens of most countries now. They never were a thousand years ago. Yeah. So history does change, you know, when you take a long lens of it. And so that's very grounding for me to read history. And the other thing is I read about death a lot. I read a lot of books about cadavers, about the process of dying, about the spirituality of dying. I'm very death positive. Mm. And... Um, because I find that like people who work in hospice or any kind of death service will say, the more you encounter death, the better you live your life. Because you really focus on, not in a like, I'm going to snort all this cocaine because we might die tomorrow. But in a like, oh, this is my life. I get to have this life. What do I want it to be? And it helps you really be in the present of what do I want this life to be? Yeah. This is all we have. Listening to Dr. Laura did change my life. <laughs> I know. Because she, but besides the obvious, because I was listening to her before and somebody was like in a shitty relationship and they called her and she was like, hey, I'm sorry, are you immortal? And they're like, no. And she's like, this is all. This is all there is. Like there's not a moment when your life's going to start after this relationship. This is your life. This is all there is. And something about it, listening to it, I was in my 20s and I think I had always imagined like after this shitty relationship, after I get done with this then my life can start because it's other things going to happen. And then I had to take a minute and be like, oh, my God. I'm in my life. Oh, yeah. oh no. I know. What have I done? Oh, my girlfriend's home. Oh, I got to go. Like, <laughs> but it, Dr. Lori changed my life. Yeah. It just I mean, it's one of those things when you're in your 20s and you realize mortality is a thing. Right. Yeah. Messages come from unlikely sources all the time. Yeah. Or likely sources, right? <laughs> likely advisors. <laughs> um, Beth Biggins, thanks for being on the podcast. I am. It was my pleasure as that, I mean, it's an honor, really, to be in this room with you, a podcast host, a podcast as I adore podcasts so much. Well, we adore having you on the podcast. This is your second time on the podcast. You gave advice about quitting jobs that we put in our LA special episode a long time ago, um, and you're my favorite Capricorn, and we're so happy to have you giving advice in Sagittarius matters. Thanks for your wonderful show. You're welcome. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.